I'm going to give you a couple of book recommendations for our series before we start. So if, if there's anyone doing um, some extra reading or, or keen to dig a bit further, I, can I recommend these two books to you? The first is called The Big Story by a guy called Justin Buzzard, and the second is called God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts. Both of them use slightly different um, summaries of the story of God. I think Justin has a five-part summary and Vaughan has a seven or eight-part summary, but we're using a four-part summary. If you want to do any more reading, particularly this one has been very helpful for us as we've prepared this series. So I will post links to those up on our family page if you would like more info on either of them. We're going to continue our series called The Story of God. We're going to hit Genesis chapter 3 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and open it up to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't, the verses will be on the screen behind me and you can follow along as you wish. So I'm going to read again, as I said last week, a fairly extended chunk of Scripture Uh, The reason we do that is because it's a story and we're summarizing the whole Bible in four sermons. And so we kind of need to do a little bit of reading to catch you up because look, there's a lot of pages in here. I'm just going to read half of one page. So Genesis chapter 3, this is the fall. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Good strategy. Hide from God who knows everything. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave me to be with me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. The Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, 
You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove him out, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. God, I come before you this morning and your people as a broken man. My teeth marks found on the fruit. A broken man speaking to broken people. God, this is a humbling story of the history of humanity. And so we pray now as we even hear this and objections and barriers are raised in our heart, we pray that by your spirit you might convict us. Remind us of the true story that we ought to live our lives by. Help us contrast this to the story of our culture, the narrative that our world writes. Help us to see our world and ourselves as we truly are. We pray that you would bring us to the end of ourselves. Convict us of our sin as much as we don't like that. And make us hungry for a Savior. We pray this in God's name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Just on Friday night, I was watching the cricket with Josh. And we were watching Australia thump. Pakistan again. It's just too easy for us at the moment. But as the cricket ended, uh, a movie came on afterwards and we were chatting and Josh was about to head out. I just caught the first five minutes of this movie. It's called Law Abiding Citizen. And if you've ever seen it, the first five minutes of that movie are graphic and gripping. And as a father and a husband, just seeing this opening scene of this, this man whose wife and daughter are murdered and raped in front of him, captured me and Josh went home and I sat in front of the TV and I had to watch the end of the movie. And I stayed up way too late. I think I went to bed at one o'clock. It meant yesterday I was really tired. I was trying to write my sermon and drink coffee and it kind of, you know, impacted my day. But I just, I couldn't go to sleep. I had to watch the end of the movie. Anyone else do that? Yes. Why do we do that? Why do we, you, you know, such a killer when a movie starts at 11 o'clock. You're like, no, I should go to bed, but it's really good. Why, why do we have that sense? I think it's because we need resolution. We need justice. We need to know how it ends. It's because we connect ourselves to the story. I identify with this character as a husband, as a father. I feel what he feels and I want it to be made right. The problem with the movie is it's so ambiguous about who's right and who's wrong and what's just and unjust. And so maybe I just wasted my time staying up to one to finish the movie. And you can also just watch it on Netflix. That's the other thing. I could have just gone and watched it the next day on Netflix. Anyway, in, um, in a book called The Triumph of Narrative, 
journalist by the name of Robert Fulford says this, Storytelling stands at the very heart of civilized life. Narrative is how we explain, teach, and entertain ourselves, often all at the same time. Story has unquestionably become the dominant means of understanding our world, ourselves, and each other. And the reality is it probably was always that way. In cultures of oral tradition, story has always been the way. How we figure out who we are, our world, and ourselves. The story of God that we've been looking at the first four weeks of January, we've broken up into four movements or four acts of God. The first act is creation. And Alnado took us there last week, answering the question, where do we come from? What is my identity as a human being? This week, we look at act number two, the fall, answering the question, what went wrong? What is my problem? Next week, Alnado will be back with act number three, which is redemption. What is, our, um, what, what is the rescue plan? What will fix the problem? What is my solution? And finally, in act number four, we look at restoration and seek to answer the question, what is our hoped for future? What is my hope? And we've kind of broken the story of God up into those four simple, easy movements for a number of reasons. And this is what we're hoping to get out of this series over January. The first is that you would read Scripture as a coherent whole. And if you realize this, but the Bible is one big story from beginning to end. It's not a bunch of little separate individual stories with a pithy moral that you're supposed to apply to yourselves, there is a thread that weaves itself from the very first page of Scripture, the very last page of Scripture, that climaxes in the person of Jesus and the ushering in of the kingdom of God. This is one story from beginning to end, despite the fact it's been written by multiple different authors over multiple centuries. There is one story. Jesus is the hero of every page. And so we hope that as we go through this series, we will teach you to see the big picture of the Scriptures amidst all of the detail of the narrative. The second hope is that, that you would look at our world with hopeful realism. As Alnado reminded us last week, that we wouldn't um, overvalue creation, that we wouldn't undervalue creation, but that we would see our world and our place in it with a hopeful realism that really only the gospel can bring. The third aim is that you would understand your story with a wide lens. That you're not just a sinner who's been saved by Jesus, but you've been created in the image of God to participate in his restorative processes here in this world as he ushers in his kingdom. That you would view your story with a wide lens. And finally, that you would grow in your gospel fluency. And what we mean by that is that you will grow in your ability to share God's story, to share your story through the lens of God's story, through this framework of creation, fall, restoration, redemption and restoration, that you would make much of Jesus in that. Story is one of the most powerful forms of communication in our age. In a postmodern world, no one can deny you your story. It's your story. It's valid. That's the best thing about being a Christian in a postmodern world. You can tell your story and people have to accept it. Jesus changed my life. That's my story. And so we need to be bold as God's people in sharing our story, sharing his story to a culture that loves story. 
If you, um, if you want to do a bit more reading on this, we uploaded a document this week in our family Facebook page called Gospel Fluency. It will take you six minutes to read, and it's a very helpful framework in thinking about how to use this story to share your story. And we're going to actually have an example of someone doing that on the last week of this series in a couple of weeks' time. So look forward to that. Now, having said that, this is one big story. I realize there's somewhat of a hypocritical move to then break it up into four small sermons and break the story apart. Case in point this week, we're just going to dwell and sit in the bad news of the fall. I realize that that's kind of clunky because a story doesn't just have one movement, one act. Today, what we're really doing is pulling this one act out of the story, examining it, and then we're going to put it back in and Arnado is going to dovetail the bad news with creation and redemption. So hang with me. Today is going to be slightly hard work. We're going to answer the question, what went wrong? What is my problem? How do we account for the existence of evil and suffering and pain in this world? You know, it doesn't really matter what your worldview is. This morning, maybe you're here and you consider yourself to be an atheist. You don't believe that there is God at all. That this world is just matter, that there was no purpose or design behind it. We are a result of random cosmic forces. Maybe you're an atheist here, an agnostic here this morning, and you're not really too sure about what you believe, about whether there is a God or not. Or maybe you have a framework for a God, that there is a God, you're just not really sure who he is or how he calls us to live. Or maybe you are here this morning, you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you believe that the God of the universe spoke this world into being. Whatever your worldview this morning, all of us agree on one truth. There is something that is horribly wrong with this world. There is something that is not right about our existence, our experience in this world. And because we all agree with that, that all means we have our own diagnosis of the problem, our own theory, our own story of what went wrong. You know, I think of the brokenness of the world and the people's lives around me. I think of a friend of mine who I went to uni with, whose son is only a few weeks younger than Judah, and was born with muscular dystrophy. Which means probably by the time he reaches his teen years, he'll be in a wheelchair. Muscular dystrophy affects every muscle in your body, including your heart. It will affect his lungs. It's a significantly reduced life expectancy. I think of girls who have come to us, who have been sexually abused by their fathers, who have been raped, who have been taken advantage of. I think of Viv Leishman, who gave birth to Jake just six days after her husband Rich died of a drug overdose in tragic circumstances. Viv, who had to leave our church and leave the city and move back to New Zealand to be with her family, to help her care for Jake and raise him. It shouldn't be like that. Think of the earthquake in Ecuador last year that killed 663 people. How do we account for the brokenness, the mess that we see around us? Well, act number two in the story of God introduces us to this concept of sin. 
Now, if you want to grow a church in 2017 full of young people in the city, in the inner west of Sydney, you don't talk about sin, right? You just keep things positive, kind of draw the masses in. You don't talk about sin. It's not a popular message today, but here's the problem. If we don't have a proper diagnosis of the problem, we won't desire or understand the solution. So we need, to prop, we need to stare our problem in the face in order to get a real proper diagnosis so that we will understand what the solution truly is. And the Bible says that humanity's rejection and rebellion against God is our oldest and most profound problem. So we're going to have a look at what the Bible calls, what theologians call the fall. It's act number two. And look, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're new to this story, let's just get this on the table. It's a weird story. All right? Yes, it's a weird, if, it sounds like science fiction. You might be sitting there thinking, are you serious? Talking snakes? Like, I mean, kids watch talking animals on TV all day and they know that real animals don't talk. Talking snakes? But here's the deal. It's not just about a talking snake. A few pages on, there's a talking donkey, and then Moses parts the Red Sea, and a million people walk through it, and, and then Jesus walks on water, and he heals a man who was born blind from birth, and there's the whole awkward bit about Jesus coming back from the dead. You're like, the talking snake is simple compared to all the other stories we read in the Bible. Here's the thing. The real question isn't, or shouldn't be, can I believe in a talking snake? The real question should be, is God real? Is God real? Because if he's real, then I've got a category for supernatural. If he's not, you're right. The talking snake's weird. It's probably fiction. Let's move on. And so if you're wrestling with a talking snake, I want to suggest, let, let, come, let's dial the clock back a bit, have a conversation about the existence of God. We would love to start there with you. Do you reckon you could give me a drink of water? Thanks. <clears throat> so... Let's move past the talking snake. Let's have a category for supernatural if we've got a God who is real. The snake is in the story. He's not actually named. Satan isn't his name. It simply means accuser or opponent or adversary. And his purpose is to lead humanity away from God. And this is how he does it. Firstly, he questions the word of God, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. You notice here that the serpent is a created being. We don't believe as Christians in a dualism, in a two equal opposite forces of good and evil. God is the only perfect good God who existed for all creation. And the serpent was created. Now that I realize that raises a whole bunch of other questions that we just cannot go into today. But the enemy of God, the accuser, is not equally powerful with God. We do not believe in dualism. And this enemy says to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Here's the deal. It's a devious question. Because God didn't actually say that at all. And Eve's answer is correct. She's like, well, actually, God did say we could eat of any of the trees except for one. But 
his question does two things. The first thing that it does is it introduces a different interpretation to the tree than God's interpretation. That's the first thing. The second thing that it does is it diverts Eve's attention to the one prohibition that God has given in all creation. Adam and Eve exist in a world full of yeses, full of provision, full of blessing, and there is one, one prohibition. And the enemy seeks to divert Eve's attention to the one thing that God has said no to. I haven't preached in a while, and my voice hurts. I need to get back in the game. So that's the first thing. He questions the Word of God. The second thing is that he contradicts the Word of God. Have a look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now again, it's a sneaky comment because it's a half-truth, right? Technically speaking, they didn't die physically, immediately, but they will eventually. And the moment Eve's lips touched that fruit, she died spiritually. And there was fracture and separation. The enemy here minimizes the consequences of sin and whispers in Eve's ear, it's okay. It's okay. So firstly, he questions the word of God. Secondly, he contradicts the word of God. And thirdly, he questions God's goodness and love. Have a look at verse 4 again. But the serpent said to the woman, you will... Not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What he's saying here is God's holding out on you. He's stingy. He's not loving. There's more to the tree than God's letting on. Because when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You'll be powerful. You'll be great. And that is enough for Eve to take the fruit, to eat it, to share it with her man. He eats. And in that moment, humanity turns its back on its creator and God. And so what I want to focus on in light of that story are two things. Firstly, the nature of sin. And secondly, the consequence of sin and what that means for us. So firstly, the nature of sin. That very moment that Eve bites into the fruit, is the moment that humanity changed forever. And you might ask the question, what's so bad about a piece of fruit? It's just fruit. You know, the fruit really isn't the issue. The action isn't really, it's the heart and the motive, the desire behind it. You see, the knowledge of good and evil that the serpent invites Eve to is not that Adam and Eve would know what's right and wrong. They already knew what was right and wrong. God had told them that. God had said, everything, everything in here is fair game except this one thing, the tree in the midst of the garden. Everything. So they, they already knew what was right and wrong. This, you will know good and evil, is not an invitation to knowing right and wrong. It's actually an invitation to participate in, govern, and dictate good and evil, right and wrong. It's an invitation to be God. And so that made Adam and Eve's choice not simply just an act of rebellion against God, but a self-centered act of idolatry. You see, in the end, sin isn't just about law-breaking. I think that's that's what we're told. Sin is just breaking the rules. It's not just about law-breaking. It's actually about law-making. Sin is actually about 
breaking God's law and then making your own ones and placing them above his. Sin takes God off the throne and puts you on it. That's the problem behind eating the fruit. But more than that, sin is actually unbelief in the heart of Adam and Eve. They don't trust that God is good on his word. They don't trust his promises. They don't view him as worthy of their worship. You know, sin in Sydney in 2017 has very different connotations from that, doesn't it? I mean, you, you look at how our culture markets sin today. Sin is always associated with chocolate and ice cream and wine and sex. Right? It, really, what our culture is saying is sin is just enjoyable naughtiness, like a little bit of ice cream on the side, some chocolate, some, some enjoyable indulgence that's really not too bad. It's just a little bit naughty. That's how we view sin. And then if you want to start to talk seriously about sin, right, our, our culture will say to you, well, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as sin because that means there has to be something called objective morality that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. We don't believe that anymore. In fact, we define our own version of what's right and wrong. We make that up. And so if it's good for you, it's good. As long as it doesn't harm anyone. That is the golden rule. That is the golden moral in 2017. As long as it doesn't harm anyone it's okay. Now, the problem with that is it only works if we have an agreed definition of what harm is. And we can't agree. No one can agree what's harmful and what's not harmful. So who gets to decide? The answer, according to our culture, is the majority gets to decide what's right and wrong. Now, that makes morality and right and wrong an entirely subjective process. You get enough people to support your position and it's in. But in our story, in the story of God, we believe that there is an all-powerful and good God who stands outside of us and tells us what is right and wrong. The story of our city is that there is no God. You were not created. There is no such thing as sin. The story of God is that there is a God. You were created in his image and likeness with dignity, value, and worth. And that he has shown us the best way for humans to flourish in the garden. So firstly, the nature of sin is not just some form of enjoyable naughtiness. It's rebellion. It's breaking the heart of God. And it's making yourself God in his place. So what are the consequences of this action? God warned Adam and Eve, did he not, that if they ate of the fruit, they would die. And the consequences play out after that moment of idolatry and rebellion. The first consequence is that there is a loss of innocence. Do you notice that? Adam and Eve were created naked, unashamed in the presence of God. After they eat the fruit, what happens? Their eyes are opened, they see their nakedness, there is shame, and they seek to cover themselves and hide from the presence of God. That's what happens. That is the first consequence of sin. There is a loss of innocence, and humanity has been bearing the scars of that ever since. 
The second consequence is that there is a fracture of relationship across every dimension and plane that you can think of. There is fractured relationship between people and God. There is fractured relationship between people and people. And there is a fractured relationship between humanity and the created world, non-human creation. You see, the garden was the way that things were always meant to be. The Hebrews called it shalom. We call it peace. Experiencing justice and wholeness and security all in the presence of God. And so that moment in the garden is when peace was shattered. In fact, one scholar, his name is Cornelius Plattinger. What a great name. He, he calls that moment vandalism of shalom. Vandalism of shalom. Peace is shattered. There is fracture. Fractured relationship with people in creation. God curses the ground, says to Adam and Eve that you will experience pain. Adam, you will toil the land and bring forth your produce with pain. Eve, you will give birth to children with pain. The world, our creation, is groaning, the Scriptures tell us. There is a fractured relationship between us and our environment. We experience that every day. But there's also a, a fractured relationship horizontally between people. You'll notice part of the consequence of sin is that Adam and Eve's relationship begins to experience disunity and brokenness and tension and one is seeking to usurp the other. The consequence of sin is that humanity now experiences brokenness in its relationships. And finally, there is a horizontal dimension to this fracture, that our relationship with God is vandalized and broken and shattered. The last consequence of sin is that humanity is exiled from the Garden of Eden. Have a look at what happens in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, Adam and Eve were created eternal beings to live in the presence of God forever, and death is a consequence of their rejection and rebellion of God. Death is a consequence. God exiles Adam and Eve from the garden in order to prevent them from gaining access to the tree of life. His provision, his life-sustaining provision has been cut off as judgment. But there's also a tiny little glimpse of grace in there. Because in that moment, what God is declaring is that he will not let humanity continue to live forever in a state of brokenness. And it makes us hungry for God's solution. In fact, there's a little promise in there that God will send one, a seed, a descendant of Eve, and she will crush the serpent's head, but he will bruise his heel. Even in the midst of this account of brokenness and rejection of God, there is grace, tiny little glimpses and kernels of grace that spring up. 
Sin is ugly in nature and devastating in its consequences. And really, from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation 22, is that where it ends? 21, 22. The story of the rest of the Bible is about how humanity gets back into the garden, how we get back into the presence of God. And so Brad and Alnado are going to come and finish the story for us in our last two movements in a few weeks. But before we do that, what are the implications of this? What does this mean for us as we interpret ourselves, our life, and the world around us? It means that we view our world as paradise lost. We view our world as paradise lost. As good as this world is, lying on Coogee Beach last week during summer sessions with half of Sydney there, it seemed like, enjoying the warm sand and the Australian sun and the beautiful beach, as good as this creation gets, it's still not perfect. This is paradise lost. Why is it that we desire for a perfect world? Why is it that we want a world that is just and fair and good and right and perfect? The reason is that we were created to experience that. That's why God made us to experience a world like that. And there is a universal human desire for a world like that that demonstrates that that's true. C.S. Lewis says, if, if I find in myself a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical conclusion is that I was created for another world. God has created us to experience a perfect world without brokenness, without sin, without suffering, without pain. And so when we experience suffering, we cry. We yearn for justice. We ask God, what's happening here? Fix this. This is not the way things ought to be. Friends, that is a universal human experience. All you have to do is cast your mind back to Stephen Fry's rant last year that dominated our social media feeds. If there is a God, why suffering? I've got to tell you, that's the hardest question in the world to answer. And we don't have time for it here. But we do need to pause and think. Why do we have a category for good and evil? Where, where does that even come from? That there is right and wrong. That we would even be able to look at this world and say, this is broken. If there is no God, if there is no divine arbitrator between right and wrong, then right and wrong are entirely subjective. Where does that sense of justice come from if we take God out of the picture? The very fact that we feel justice, the very fact that we yearn for it, means that we know deep down something's not right, that this world that we've experienced ought to have been an experience of perfection and goodness. If we're really honest, though, the world that we desire, the one that we want to see, if God was to fix this world up, it would require some form of judgment. It would require some form of figuring out what was right and what was wrong, and what could stay and what needed to go. And the question is, where do we draw the line? 
Would we say to God, all right, God, deal with this mess. Sort out all of the natural evil in our world. No more earthquakes, no more cancer, no more miscarriages, no more brokenness of that kind. Sort out all of the, moral, the, the natural evil that exists in our world. What do we do about moral evil? The evil that humanity commits willfully. Surely we don't want a world where there is murder and lying and deceit and broken relationships. And so we want God to fix that bit too, but that leaves us with a dilemma. And the dilemma is this, I'm part of the problem. I am part of the problem. And so the world we so long for and desire, it seems to me, excludes us. Because we are broken, sinful people. In 1908, the London Times newspaper sent a question to a bunch of journalists and writers and thinkers. The question was this, what is wrong with the world? Their hope was to get a whole bunch of different opinions and thoughts and write this big feature article about it, kind of make it saucy and disagreement. A number of people responded to their question. One of those people was a man by the name of G.K. Chesterton brilliant Christian theologian, and he replied back to the question, what is wrong with the world with two words? I am. I am. You see, the problem is not entirely out there. Part of it's also in here, in me. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. And this perfect world that we desire somehow excludes us. I don't know if you saw the Noah movie, the the recent one with Russell Crowe in it. This angsty tension that Russell Crowe's character Noah has is that he believes that his mission from God is to destroy humanity because human has done such a good job of messing up this world that only non-human life is perfect and good. And so his mission from God that he wrestles with is humanity must end with him. He wrestles with this tension of whether or not to take the life of his grandchild if they will continue to bear children and continue to cause humanity to be fruitful and increase. I kind of enjoyed the movie, but the truth is that everything is broken. It's not just us. It's not just the human part of creation that's broken. All of our existence, all of our world is broken. It is paradise lost. And what that means is that if this is a good world that has gone bad because of human choices, decisions, and actions, then God is not to blame. As much as we feel the injustice of a God who is sovereign, all-powerful, and in control, that would somehow turn a blind eye to all the pain in our world, that we would like to shake our fist at Him, God is not to blame. Evil does not originate from the heart of God. He is a good God who has made this world perfect. And we experience paradise lost. You see, God's original intent was that we would be agents of his rule and his kingdom. He gives what's called the creational mandate, this instruction that Adam and Eve would till the earth and cultivate it, that they would make the rest of the world like the Garden of Eden. 
that they would fill the earth, subdue it, make it good for human flourishing. But because of the fall, we encounter destruction, environmental brokenness and fracture across every possible plane. But you know, the 21st century narrative that we hear, that we're told today, is that people are intrinsically good. We just occasionally make bad choices, bad decisions, and do dumb things. That's the narrative of our culture. The real problems of the world are out there. They're kind of systemic. They're with politics and education and society and organized religion. They're the real problems with the world. But humanity, we're fundamentally good. We just sometimes make poor choices. I don't know if that sits well with you because I know that I'm not fundamentally good. I know that I'm a sinner, that I'm selfish, that I'm lazy, that I sometimes think horrible things about people. You see, our sin is not something that we do contrary to our nature. It is. It is who we are. The story of God seems to me to make better sense of our experience in our world than any other story. Something is intrinsically wrong with this world and with me, even if we don't recognize it. In 2008, there was a TV show that aired uh, called Moment of Truth. And a participant on that show was a lady by the name of Lauren Cleary. She was um, interviewed prior to going on to live television, and they asked her a bunch of questions while she was hooked up to a polygraph. And the polygraph determined whether her answers to those questions were true or whether she was lying. In front of her husband, her family and friends, the quiz show host asked her a bunch of uncomfortable and awkward questions about things that she had stolen, about lies that she had told. It gets to a point in the game where The game show host invites another person to come and ask a question and it just so happens to be her ex-boyfriend. Now the question he asks is, who would you actually prefer to have been married to, me or your current husband? And the guy's sister, the husband's sister who's sitting on the couch, she vetoes the question. She hits a button. She says, we don't want to hear the answer to that question. Veto the question. All right, let's move on to the next one. Have you ever been unfaithful? been in a sexual relationship with someone else while you've been married to your husband? She ponders. She answers yes. In front, live television in front of her husband and family. The dude is gutted. They have a bit of conversation. He says to her, you may as well keep going. Win $200,000. You've ruined our marriage. What's the point? Just go for it. The very next question the presenter asks her is, Do you think you're a good person? She doesn't pause for very long. She says, yeah, I think I'm a good person. And the polygraph says no. That deep down, despite the words that came out of her mouth, she knew that all of those things that she had done, in fact, hadn't made her a good person. But before you point the finger, don't we all do that? Don't we all try and point to the the worst version of humanity and say, well, at least I'm not that bad. And just because we're not that bad doesn't automatically mean that you're good. Or don't we all try and divorce desire and motivation and outward action and say the two aren't linked? 
the story of humanity is that we are sinners by nature and choice. To use a Francis Schaeffer term, we are glorious ruins, created in the image of God, broken and bent by sin, fractured by my choices and desires. You know, that narrative makes more sense to me than a worldview without God. There is a contradiction I find in atheism that says that we are nothing but matter, we are immoral beings, that we are not designed, therefore there is no good or evil, and yet there is a yearning, a longing for morality, for justice, for love. That makes sense to me. That God has made this world good and we have messed it up. But you know, the Christian story is one that wants to be real about the problem of humanity. There's no freedom in burying our heads in the sand and ignoring the problem. We are free to admit, admit that we're a mess. Our humanity has never been good at that, admitting our mistakes. I mean, even in the narrative, you saw Adam says to God, well, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me the fruit. And then Eve's like, well, the serpent that, that tricked me, he made me do it. We're, we're so good at shifting blame and pointing the finger. We've been doing it since the dawn of time. But the story of God allows us to stop pretending and admit that we are a mess. The story of God ought to produce a healthy sense of realism about us. And when we do, I think there's something attractive to our culture about that. Don't you hate it when you see a rugby league player get caught out and they don't admit to their mistake? Or you see Tiger Woods' apology and you think, man, after so long, and then finally when you got caught, then you apologize. Too late. But when someone stands up and says, I'm not perfect, I'm a mess. In fact, I'm a bigger mess than you probably realize. That screams authenticity. We go, yeah, actually, I can identify with that because that's what our world's experience is. But we've been good since the beginning of time at hiding, at covering. The story of God, because of the good news that comes next week, frees us to be real about the mess. You know, one of the weaknesses, uh, I think, of Christian testimony, of the stories that we share has been this propensity to tell simply a before and after story. The before story says, before I met Jesus, I was a jerk, I was a sinner, I was a wretch. Then Jesus saved me and look at my life now, it's perfect. The problem with that is it's not really true. It just focuses on act two and three of the narrative and leaves out act one and four. That this process of Redemption continues until the final restoration of God as he ushers in his kingdom. We include the whole story. We live in a broken world. I am a work in progress. I have not arrived. The complete restoration lies ahead. And I think our stories at that point become believable and real and attractive to our culture. So how do we view ourselves and our world? We view ourselves as glorious ruins living in paradise lost. 
But thankfully, the story of God doesn't end with fallen humanity. See, God is the one who broke into the brokenness of this world. He became familiar with our suffering. I can't really give a good answer to why my friend's son was born with muscular dystrophy or why Viv had to lose Rich six days before Jake was born or why 663 people were killed in the earthquake in Ecuador last year. I don't, I don't have a good answer for that. But what I do know is we worship a God who is familiar with suffering. A God, in fact, who knows what it's like to lose a child, to lose a son. Because he sent Jesus to be a sacrifice, to pay for the sin that we committed. And that is what we will look at next week. So please come back. If you feel your heart is convicted, if you feel personally that you have turned your back on God, rejected him and are bearing the consequences of that rejection, then the good news is going to be unpacked next week. But here it is. Jesus has paid for your sin. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we're on about here at Anchor. So come back for part three of the story of God next week. But for now, we're going to celebrate a reminder of that. The Lord's Supper is a continual reminder that you're a broken person who needs saving and rescuing, that Jesus shed his blood, his body was broken on your behalf so that you could be set free. This reminder in this moment is a meal for you, for those of you who love Jesus. Come forward, do business with God, eat, dip the bread in the grape juice, eat it and remember, Christ has covered my brokenness. Christ has taken away my shame. His blood has washed me clean. I am made whole. We're going to pray. For those of you who need prayer, maybe this morning there is a prick of conviction that you need to deal with. Our prayer team are up at the back. They're going to be wearing orange name tags and they would love to pray for you. Maybe you want to give your life to Jesus today. You've heard enough. You know you need saving. Maybe there's a conviction of sin in your life this morning that you know you need to walk away from that you have not told anyone that today you want to confess and experience the freedom that Christ brings, go to our prayer team. They would love to pray for you. And as the band comes up now, we're going to respond finally in worship. We're going to sing to this God who has rescued us, this God who has created us, his image bearers. And we're going to enjoy him because that's what we were created for. So church, I invite you to stand now as we transition and worship Jesus together. So please stand. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you did not leave us to wallow in the mess of our own brokenness. I thank you that you have dealt with the problem by sending Jesus. God, help us to be real about who we truly are. Help us to be real about our sin. Today, God, I pray for any person in this room who is experiencing a quota of conviction and shame and guilt that they would not do what Adam and Eve and humanity has been doing for all of time, hiding from you. We thank you that Jesus covers our sin. It means we can come into the light. Today, God, please bring redemption in our lives, in our church, in our city. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. And those who agreed said, Amen.